Now with the MLB app, you can get baseball your way. Pick your favorite team, your favorite players, and get customized highlights, stories, and breaking news right on your home feed. Follow the action with Game Tip, where 3D replays add another dimension. Plus, notifications can keep you connected to every pitch, every hit, every game. The MLB app. Baseball, your way. Download it now for free from the App Store or Google Play. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trade parts used with permission. The top stories from the KCBS Radio Newsroom. This is the All Local. Good morning. I'm Margie Schaefer. And I'm Eric Thomas. Here's what's happening. Despite a pretty healthy Sierra snowpack right now, California is gearing up for a political battle over its water future and potentially how much we pay for water and produce. An explanation from KCBS reporter Holly Kwan. We use a lot of water from the Colorado River. It goes to water Imperial Valley crops and hydrate Southern California. But the river is also drying up, so the federal government wants to know how we and six other states that draw from the Colorado plan to cut back. Those six states already submitted a collaborative plan insisting that California cut back the most. But California says, no, our water rights are older and stronger than those other states. KCBS political analyst Mark Sandalow. California's water rights on paper are legally much better protected than Arizona and New Mexico and Wyoming and other states. So, you know, an equal reduction would have a much bigger effect on California. And they say the water is legally ours. If they don't reach this agreement, and it appears they definitely won't, the federal government's going to step in. And no one knows what's going to happen. Any drastic reduction to the state would mean Southern California would rely even more on Northern California supplies and our Sierra snowpack. Holly Kwan, KCBS. Deplorable, that's the word used by a San Mateo County supervisor to describe the living conditions of farm workers at one of the two mass shooting sites in Half Moon Bay. KCBS's Jennifer Hodges reports on what's coming to light about farm worker housing. Sheds on concrete blocks, some with no plumbing or bathrooms. Now the owner of Terra Gardens, where the shooting took place, admits the farm worker housing isn't up to code. The tragedy that happened in Half Moon Bay was horrible, but the one good thing that has come out about it is it has shown a national spotlight on the horrible working and living conditions of farm workers. Darlene Tennis is the founder of the Farm Workers Caravan advocating for farm workers' rights. The gunman lived in a shack on the property, wooden pallets holding it up, a tarp over the roof. Although county officials say there's no record of any violations, not unusual considering it's farm workers affected. When we have tragedies that happen to us, whether it's floods, wildfires, Um, shootings, anything, we immediately say, what's the government going to do for us? What's the city going to do? What's the county going to do? What's the state going to do? They don't expect that. Typically, housing violations are uncovered by complaints. Jennifer Hodges, KCBS. The driver of a car that plunged off a cliff at Devil's Slide earlier this month is now facing attempted murder charges. KCBS's Matt Bigler reports that prosecutors believe the doctor was trying to kill his family. He intentionally tried to kill us. That's what Dharmesh Patel's wife told paramedics who responded to the Tesla crash off Devil's Slide on January 2nd. It's just one of the reasons that prosecutors have now filed attempted murder charges. Right now, based on the evidence we have, it seems to us that this was an intentional act. San Mateo County District Attorney Steve Wagstaff tells KCBS other drivers say the Tesla Model Y never a applied the brakes, and there's also video of the vehicle going over the cliff. I've seen that video, and it very clearly depicts the uh, Tesla driving up to the top of the hill, 
not drifting over to the side, but actually making a turn off of the road and then making a sharp right turn over the cliff and down the 250 feet to where it landed. Amazingly, everyone survived. The two young children have been released from the hospital. Wagstaff says the only thing they don't know is the motive. Why Patel, a radiologist from Pasadena, allegedly tried to kill himself and his entire family. Matt Bigler, KCBS. Seven people have been displaced by a fire at a San Jose mobile home park early this morning. The fire at the Coyote Creek mobile home community on Center Road was reported at 5.22 a.m. Everyone got out safely. Windsor in Sonoma County is getting tough on sideshow participants. KCBS's Jeffrey Schaub reports a new ordinance will make the events illegal and drivers and organizers could end up paying big fines or even wind up in jail. Windsor Police Chief Mike Roche says his community has modeled its new ordinance after Santa Rosa's, which he says has made a difference. A lot of people are not even from our community that are participating in this. They're from the East Bay, South Bay. And um, so Santa Rosa's put this ordinance in place and I think uh, it's been effective. The Windsor Town Council is expected to pass an ordinance Wednesday night, making the driving exhibitions and street racing illegal. Those who participate, drivers, passengers, even spectators, could be in violation. Vehicles impounded for 30 days, steep fines imposed, even jail time. People they are taking over intersections, they're blocking traffic. If there's emergency vehicles, let's say someone needs an ambulance or a fire truck, or the police, some of these intersections are blocked. We we can't get through. Gun violence and fights have been associated with the sideshows, and spectators have been injured in several of the events in Santa Rosa. In the North Bay, Jeffrey Schaub, KCBS. A man accused of trying to kill a sheriff's deputy is under arrest in Santa Clara County. Emmanuel Diaz-Ramos was taken into custody yesterday at the Prune Yard Shopping Center in Campbell after a warrant was issued for his arrest. Sheriff's officials say Ramos had failed to cooperate with the deputy who pulled him over on Saturday, first running off on foot, then pulling out a loaded firearm and threatening to open fire. The deputy and the suspect then wrestled for control of that firearm. When the deputy got the upper hand, Ramos ran back to his car and took off. He was booked on several charges, including attempted murder of a peace officer. Hey, good morning, meteorologist Jessica Birch here. It's been pretty chilly to start off this day. I mean, we're still talking about below freezing temperatures in a lot of the areas up in the North Bay. But luckily, we warm up into the mid and even upper 50s this afternoon with plenty of sunshine to go around. Now that sunshine is going to be replaced by cloudy skies tomorrow and even into Thursday afternoon and as early as Thursday evening, we're going to start seeing those cloudy conditions be replaced with rain clouds. We're going to see rain as we head into late Thursday night, Friday morning, catching a little bit of a break as we head into Saturday, but then more showers returning to the forecast even into the rest of this weekend. So cloudy conditions, rainy conditions, it's right around the corner, but today we're talking about sunshine. So get out there, enjoy it, get some fresh air. Make sure you do have layers, though. It is a chilly day. We are going to keep you updated on that, but for now, I'm meteorologist Jessica Birch with your KCBS KPIX First Alert Forecast. It's time now for Ask and expert every weekday at this time on KCBS. We're giving you direct access to top experts across various fields. Today, the White House announced plans yesterday to end the public health emergency for COVID in May, just over three months from now, and that's setting in motion a series of policy transitions and making it a good time to make your own COVID plan going forward. To answer your questions, we're joined live on the KCBS Ring Central News Line by Dr. Bob Wachter, professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. If you have a question you'd like answered, please email us at 
as always, at askus at kcbsradio.com. Dr. Walker, thanks for joining us, as always. Um, My pleasure. As uh, the federal government looks to end the public health emergency, uh, what effects do you think that's going to have on, on people seeking out vaccines and the other sort of you know, prophylactic things we've put in place to try to get a handle on COVID? Yeah, they're probably, that's probably going to be the biggest change is that the vaccines and treatments and tests will be treated sort of like the rest of medicine, uh, that you'll be able to get them and, uh, and we hope insurance will cover them because they have tremendous value, but they won't be treated as something different and special uh, compared to the way blood pressure medicines are treated or cholesterol medicines are treated or diabetes medicines are treated. You know, at some point, it was going to be important to say the emergency stage of this has passed. We're now into a stage that's probably chronic. Uh, you know, the way COVID is now is probably not going to be all that different a year or two or five from now. And so I think it was reasonable to begin moving to this new, more uh, long-lasting stage, although there are some challenges as we make the transition. Is three months enough time to prepare? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think whether it was three months, four months, or, or, or six months, there needs to be a little bit of time to figure out how much it's going to cost to get Paxlovid or get vaccines, whether your insurance company is going to cover it. There are a few policies that are under the public health emergency that have to get transitioned. The CDC can no longer mandate that states give them information about COVID cases, but I think most states will want to do that, and I hope they want to do that. So all those things have to be worked out. I don't think three months is a perfectly reasonable amount of time to sort all that out. Well, assuming for a moment that uh, most insurance companies will cover this in some way, shape, or form, where does that leave the unhoused and, and poor people? Yeah, in some ways, no different than that question as it relates to treating their diabetes or their blood pressure or their cancer. I mean, this is moving back to uh, treating COVID like we treat other things in the regular health care system uh, is not a joyous thing to say because there are a lot of things in the regular health care system that should be treated differently and in a system where everybody had health insurance, uh, they would be. Uh, you know, through Obamacare, uh, Medicaid and Medi-Cal expansion has been uh, quite robust. Uh, far more people have health insurance, and I think you will be able to get <clears throat> you will be able to get your vaccines, and you will be able to get your uh, treatments for COVID uh, if you have Medi-Cal. But, you know, the problem for people that have absolutely no health insurance, then that's going to fall to cities and counties to figure out is there a way to cover those costs. As uh, we continue to live with uh, COVID, as you mentioned, a more chronic uh, situation, um, how should we address that? Are there forever mask scenarios? Well, I, I think everybody is sort of choosing their own adventure at this point. You know, most people are not masking. Uh, in, in, in I'd say most people are not masking in any situations. They're sort of choosing to live as if as if it was 2019, and I understand that. I uh, prefer not to wear a mask uh, if I could. Uh, for me, uh, I am no longer uh, wearing a mask in a small, uh, uncrowded room. Um, uh, I am comfortable now eating an indoor restaurant, which I wasn't a month or so ago because the case rate in the Bay Area has come way, way down. 
But to me, if I get on a crowded airplane or I'm in a crowded, very crowded public space and I don't need to speak to anybody, even the small risk of getting COVID is something I prefer not to take. And so I will continue wearing a mask, for example, flying on airplanes. I'm not going to be quite as religious as I was a year or two ago. I'll take it off for a few minutes to eat or drink. But um, to me, you know, I think the benefits of wearing a mask in crowded indoor places outweigh the downsides, as long as there's a modest amount of COVID around. I think for many people, they will not make that choice. They'll just decide that it's easier and they prefer life going back to accepting a small risk of getting COVID. If you're fully vaccinated, by which I mean you've gotten the bivalent booster, if you've had all of your shots, the chances that you're going to get very sick and die of COVID have come down tremendously, not to zero, but tremendously. Uh, to me, the reason I'm still moderately careful is the risk of long COVID is real. It's not super high, but it's probably 5 or 10%. My wife has a mild case of it, and it's not pleasant. And I'm, I'd like to do what I can to avoid getting COVID if I can continue to do that. Doc, do you think uh, we're looking at a scenario where, unfortunately, at some point, everybody will have had uh, COVID? Probably. Uh, I I don't think I've had it yet, but I haven't been tested for antibodies. There's a decent chance that even though I've never had symptoms of COVID and I've always tested negative when I had anything that felt slightly fluish, uh, there's a decent chance I have had it, that I just had an asymptomatic case. With the data, when you test people, everybody, including people who feel like they've never had it, probably upwards of 90% of us have, and probably at some point all of us all of us will. But the fact if you've had it once, you still don't want to get it again. Each case adds to your risk of getting long COVID. Each case adds to what appears to be a higher uh, risk of, of ultimately having a heart attack or a stroke or dementia, things that, you know, I know people who say I've gotten it and, you know, I didn't want to, but at least now I'm out of the woods. I wish that were true, but you still, it's as important not to get your second case as it was not to get your first. Doctor, you were mentioning earlier that the COVID numbers are definitely down in uh, California. I'm just wondering a bigger picture. Um, what do you see in the United States and also even bigger than that uh, with China? And are you concerned that those numbers will change here? Yeah, they're way down in California and down in the Bay Area. You know, they're in California, I think it's now nine cases per 100,000 people per day which is a very low number compared to where we've been over the last couple of years. The numbers are always underestimates because they obviously are missing all the home tests, but they're, they're very low. There's a little patchiness in the United States, but by and large, it's pretty low everywhere. It's been a little higher in the Northeast. Uh, the newest variant, the XBB 1.5, which seemed to was, was worrisome, has not caused the kind of massive surge that we worried about. And so it looks like we're going to survive this winter with there have been moderate surges. Obviously, the combination with flu and RSV caused a problem a couple of months ago. That's mostly gone away. So pretty benign. It's hard to tell what's going on in China. I mean, the, the reports are scary, but it's, it's kind of uh, it, it's a little hard to tell uh, what's going on there. Certainly a month or so ago, it looked terrible. And I haven't heard any recent reports that I have any confidence in. Oh, what do you make of the WHO saying COVID remains a global emergency? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, they're they're just words. I mean, there there are there there still is COVID around. There will be COVID around for the foreseeable future and maybe forever. Even in the United States, there are 500 people a day dying of it. So clearly, it's it's a significant threat, and treating it that way is perfectly reasonable. That there are countries where the threat is even higher than it is in the United States. I think the question is 
from a, from a matter of policy and practice, do we continue to treat this as something being, you know, sort of fundamentally different than the way we treat other infectious epidemics, other other diseases? Uh, it sort of, you know, yes, it's real. Yes, there's a threat around the world, and uh, but I think from from where the United States sits. This is about the way it's going to be for the foreseeable future. So I think it is reasonable to move to a new way of thinking about it. Now, since we're always going to have to contend with some sort of virus or bacteria that's going to cause problems for humans, what do you think we've learned about keeping a, a wall between the science and the politics of it? Well, we've learned that we're terrible at it, and we've learned that the science can be fantastic, but if the politics gets in the way of people uh, having the means or, or, or the information they need to do the right thing. In some ways, you know, it's not that it doesn't matter that we, we need the vaccines, we need the treatments, but the biggest problem in our management of COVID has not been the lack of fantastic science coming up with tests and treatments and vaccines that are really spectacularly effective. The biggest problem is that misinformation, somewhat driven by politics, has caused a whole lot of people to not do what they should do, that's, you know, to act in a way that's not in their own best interest and the best interest of their, their, their friends and family. And literally hundreds of thousands of people have died because of that. So I think we've learned that we have to get better at that. It's not obvious how we will. And I'm actually more worried about the next one because I think the purveyors of misinformation now have learned the playbook and at least in the first three or four months, there was a time where everybody was so scared out of their wits that they were listening for good information. And then, you know, where we are now is, uh, is in a pretty scary place. And I think in the next one, immediately you're going to begin hearing people talk about you shouldn't wear masks, you shouldn't take vaccines, or you shouldn't take treatment, uh, because people now know uh, the purveyors of misinformation now understand the playbook better than they did before. So I think we're in a pretty scary place. Uh, what about the public health playback uh, uh, playbook? Rather, um, when you think about it, like three years, I just can't believe it's been nearly three years since uh, those first uh, lockdown. And as you say, those were very scary times. Uh, yeah. From a public health standpoint, what can you do differently aside from trying to get ahead of the messaging? But just you know, as far as logistics go, um, what could what can public health officials do differently? Well, it, it's I do think that that there is a playbook now for public health officials and communities and states. Uh, and the CDC uh, to kind of push a button and and move some things forward in a way that this time was very, very haphazard and patchy. And so, for example, you know, PPE, there now will be stockpiles that are immediately available. Uh, the move toward getting effective tests out there, which was really a disaster in, in, uh, in 2020, I think uh, we now understand how important that is, and I think there'll be a clearer and less frictionful way to do that. Uh, so, you know, there are things that we have learned. We've also learned that it kind of depends on where we've also, I mean, I think an example of something we did very well here in California and particularly in the Bay Area is think about underserved communities, think about equity and everything we do. And some of the equity issues, which I worried about, there certainly were some, but they were less severe than I think they might have been 10 years ago. We paid, paid a lot of attention to underserved communities. So, those are, I think, we'll be better at than we uh, than we were before, but um, and and I think we should learn from Operation Warp Speed. There were a lot of things about the last administration that were just terrible in terms of their handling of the pandemic, the way they handled vaccine development, not vaccine rollout, which was bad, but vaccine development was spectacular. 
I mean, really got us vaccines very, very quickly. And what they really did was form a public-private partnership and catalyze the development of vaccines. I think that was magnificent, and we should replicate that, if anything, make it faster. But what about the coordination between federal, state, and local public health officials? Was that adequate? No, it was terrible. And, and what we learned is that the tools that the federal government has to collaborate with states and localities were really quite weak. And, you know, in, in the early days of the pandemic, I remember, uh, you know, the, the, out of the vice president's office came a memo saying, send us your Excel spreadsheets to communities all over the country. I mean, that can't be in 2023. That can't be the system that you have to collect data from all over the country about cases or hospitalizations or deaths. There needs to be a much tighter system. The problem is politics immediately gets involved. If you start saying to the federal government, we want to give you the power to be able to mandate data uh, being sent to you from every state in the country. There are states like California that will say that sounds like a good idea. That's a smart thing to do. And there are other states that, uh, that have a very different uh, thoughts about the role of, uh, of the federal government, even in matters of public health, uh, that will fight that. And so it's a very sticky problem. But I think we did learn that the data systems that we need and the coordination between federal, state and local was not very good. And it set us back a lot, including in research. A lot of the early research through which we found that steroids worked or Paxlovid worked or all that, uh, or the vaccines worked, a lot of that research came from the UK and came from Israel, where there are much more robust central systems to collect data and monitor it. We were way behind and we were following uh, the lead of other countries that had those systems in place. Thanks so much for your expertise and insight. We've been joined on the KCBS Ring Central Newsline by Dr. Bob Walker, professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Subscribe to the All Local wherever you get your podcasts and stream us on your smart speaker 24-7 by saying, play KCBS Radio. Listen to every MLB game live. The deep left center field, it is high, it is far, it is gone. Stream minor league affiliates. The Midwest League home run leader. And watch the best baseball highlights and look-ins on MLB Big Inning. MLB at-bat is your all-in-one live baseball subscription for only $3.99 per month. Deep left field, it's going to go. Alvarez ties the game. Subscribe to at-bat within the MLB app today. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission.